I just, I just wanted to say, you gotta show love to Larry Dorsey for getting on at Cobb's and the Punchline tonight in the same night. It's fucking amazing. I don't know if you know, uh, the Punchline Call Fire safest comic in San Francisco. They do not let me in there. Thank you. <laughs>
Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review. This is Roman. It's Friday, May 4th, 2018. Hope everyone's doing well. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live in the Mission District here in San Francisco, California, on Ohlone land. And that's where we are. Thanks so much for listening in. Uh, this is a mostly a news and current events program here, and we play some music in between to cleanse the palate, as it were. And so... I'll provide a trigger warning, as I often do before the show. Uh, we will be talking about what's happening in the world and how I've, I've run out of words sometimes, and I feel the words don't necessarily adequately describe everything that's happening and what folks are feeling. So just putting, and there's my special effects, which is me touching the microphone stand, providing just the ahead of the content that will be coming, uh, that this is a lot of really disturbing things that are happening in the world and it's a fun show can't you tell sometimes we find some good things to talk about and some positive things so it's not going to be all i haven't really made a plan yet for what we'll be what we'll be talking about today some days i am a little more organized than others and sometimes i'm sometimes i'm not so we'll get through some articles about what's happening in the world as an update and we'll also be I believe the phones are working again at 415-550-0511. I wanted to apologize. I haven't had a guest on the show in quite a while, and that's not intentional. Sometimes schedules don't work out, and sometimes there's technical difficulties, and there's a lot of other things, and also it's on me as well. So I prefer it when we have guests on the show and we can speak with people and learn a lot. So that is a upcoming goal. And putting that out there in the universe, sometimes when we say things aloud... We can speak them into being. So we'll be having guests on the show again in the near future. So it's just the the last few weeks that things haven't quite uh, worked out that way. So that's good, I guess. It is good. It is good. I'm waking up here a bit. Meditated this morning, which is always helpful. If folks are able to make the time, I recommend it. There's a lot to process and unpack in the world. And if one can make the time just to sit... <sighs> It, it helps me, and I know it helps some other folks as well. So hopefully that's that's a thing that works. Hope everyone's doing all right this week, this day. <sighs> yeah, it seems like there's constantly so many things to be upset about. On the flip side, there are folks who are taking action. It was May Day. It was May Day recently, and... I don't know if folks saw, however, there are a lot of photos coming out from France where folks really took to the streets, and apparently it was the most... I don't have the, the article in front of me, but the idea was that there was... It was the most... Fill in the blank. This is going like, to be like Mad Libs. The most blank demonstration since May Day of 1968. So you can fill in the word for what you would like that to be. Adjective. Or a noun. We don't know. I guess I'm waking up a bit here. I've had caffeine this morning. However, uh, there's a lot going on, and it's difficult to make the space to to speak about these things and to prepare oneself. Sometimes after the show, I feel really distraught and like, all right, I'm done for the day. It's 2 p.m., and I am I am done after you know forcing myself to read what's happening, to talk about it, to put language to things that feel really awful, to bear witness as best one can. It, it's, it's, it can be draining. I'm not going to lie. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I know we haven't really fully started the show yet, 
but we'll we'll get to that. So thanks again so much for tuning in. The, I was planning on playing certain music this morning, and that didn't quite work out, so I'm feeling a little bit uh, off, as it were. I'm going to pull up some articles, and then I oftentimes start with a rant. I can continue to rant about fucking Mark Farrell, our interim mayor, who has ordered homeless sweeps, which is ridiculous. And then last week we played video clip, uh, well, we played the audio clip. We did play the video as well as it sounds like audio. You get it. Of folks who are being interviewed because they've been doing uh, sweeps of homeless encampments, which is cruel and disgusting and disheartening and backwards. And it's the opposite of what needs to happen. For folks in vulnerable situations, the idea should be that, oh, you can offer support, you can offer help, you can offer resources, and at the very least, don't hurt people. You don't take their stuff. And that's exactly what the city is doing. The Department of Public Works and the police department are going around, because now it's legal, and we should all, of course, question what is legal, because oftentimes what's legal isn't what's right, and vice versa. There was a sign in my junior high school that had a sign up that's like, what's popular isn't always what's right, and what's right isn't always what's popular. And I like to change that up and say, replace popular with legal, because that's very true. So now it's legal for, or it's illegal to pretty much be on the street a lot of the time here in San Francisco. And I feel like I've heard that similar things are happening in other parts of the country as well. (sighs) And how fucked up is that? That it's someone's job to literally steal from somebody especially folks who, do, who don't have a lot. So there was a meeting, um, unfortunately I couldn't attend it, this previous week of folks who are looking to see what can be done to stand up, or sorry, uh, what can be done to show up against the sweeps. And so again, it's usually communities that are, that are showing up for people. It's very, and the politicians are the ones causing the problems. It seems to be a common recurrence. Ugh. So pretty angry about that, and it's it's really frustrating when you when you see it, and it's the most marginalized folks being targeted. It's extremely upsetting. <sighs> so Mark Farrell, shame on you, and shame on the folks who are just following orders, harming people. And on the flip side, I'm sending lots of love and solidarity to the folks who are experiencing this and to the folks who are doing all they can to help support and protect these folks. Because it's really, it's just so disturbing. It's so disturbing. Ugh. I feel glum now. But it's it's what's happening here in the city. That's one thing. Also, people are, I, I wonder if occasionally I go back and like maybe listen to snippets of previous episodes. I'm like, oh, I remember when that happened in the news or when that happened locally, and I wonder where that's at now. And so sometimes it's cool to go back and see this is some kind of record. And of course, this is all, this is the information that I've either seen or heard, and we can all discuss, you know, the accuracy and what's reported and what's not. And so I prefer to report on things I know either firsthand or I've seen or heard from activists. And one thing we've seen that a lot of other folks have also reported on are the scooters that are being left in the middle of the sidewalk. And this has kind of been happening for a few weeks now. So for folks who don't live in, in the city and or are not um, around, there's a, so similar, so the fucking Ford bikes, which is fucking terrible. They have like this bike system and they, first of all, they just started installing these rentable bikes. And if you know me, I love bicycles. I love bicycling. I think it's great. Uh, there's, I think there should be more bike safety and more bike availability for folks for a number of reasons. Not a big fan of automobiles and the automobile industry, 
and this is more just for like you know if the folks who it's it's not i i don't want to it's it's more just that if this country had focused more on public transit and accessibility i i'd say in addition as opposed to everyone having to get their own car it's just like it's a class issue it's an accessibility issue and it's just it's fucked up that people are kind of forced or put in the corner to to get cars instead of putting the funds into public transit and or bikes and or other modes of transportation. All right, that's where I'm coming from. So I like that idea. However, Ford bikes, even though plenty of communities have had their own bike sharing uh, things also already in the works, Ford bikes was like, we need to like charge people for bike. It's just fucked up. And they also have tracking on them. I'm uh, There's a lot of articles that have been written that delve more into the details of it. It's pretty much branding it's taking up space. It's privatization of bikes as well. And I'm all for like, let's just have free bikes for everyone that needs them instead of having to charge people for them and also having this really ugly branding on it. And also that it takes up space on the streets. And they're also just tracking people, which is kind of creepy. Not that our phones don't already track us. It's just an additional thing. Okay, so those are the bikes. Now they also have these little scooters. And I get that they can be helpful. However, they're also, they've been branded and they also cost money. And people are leaving them in the middle of the sidewalks <laughs> when they're done with them. There's not really any, at least with the bikes, there's like a place you can park them. I still don't like the whole biking, that the Ford bike system. However, at least there's a place you return them to. With the scooters, people are leaving them out in the middle of the sidewalks. And you can imagine how frustrating that is. So then now Department, Department of Public Works is now like going around trying to remove the scooters. And I'm like, well, I'd rather have them, you know, take those scooters and harass unhoused folks. However, it's just, it's a mess, and it's just this kind of, it's difficult to explain if you haven't seen them. It's just very, it's people kind of, it's not, it's a not very well thought out uh, industry and plan. (sighs) And I feel oftentimes that tech has kind of moved so forward without humanity moving forward, and tech could provide a lot of positive things for people, and in some ways it has. And also, as we can see, Humans still use tech for a lot of terrible things, so or kind of careless. So humans haven't had a chance to really evolve past tech. That makes sense. All right, those are my thoughts. Perhaps they'll be more clear later on. Hope folks get the point or points. I'm going to look for some other things to, uh, there'll be things to share. A lot of it's also, maybe I'm just also stalling because it's like, oh, that's really fucking depressing. That's really scary. I don't want to talk about it. However, by pretending it's not there, that doesn't solve anything. And I also recognize talking about it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. At least we can acknowledge that it's happening, sit with it for a little bit, and then think about where to go next. There were reports, I didn't talk about it too much last week, that they did they did catch the the Golden State, the Golden State Killer, who apparently was an ex-cop, and I hope you're all sitting down for that because I know that's a shock for a lot of us. It's a shock that someone who was in law enforcement could actually assault people and kill people. That's shocking. Uh, there's no laugh track on this program. Oh gosh, there's. Oh, I'm looking through these articles now, and they're all just deeply upsetting, <laughs> and I don't want to sit here and upset people i'd love to just sit here and play music and maybe i'll do that at some point um oh gosh i'll read one headline this is it's a lot of just uh uh like why humanity is going backwards in a way it's like we're gonna call we're gonna harm people and it's uh, oftentimes people in positions of power causing that harm 
one article from KQED, uh, Fremont and sex ed for fourth through sixth graders after curriculum controversy. Because apparently, you know, people shouldn't know how to, you know, manage their bodies and about consent and sex education. And it's, so that's, so it's a program that's been around. All right, I'm going to read this and I'm taking the microphone out of the stand. I'm getting angry. I'm getting real fucking angry about this. And we haven't even, we've barely scratched the surface yet. And Fremont is a, it's a town here in California uh, for folks who are uh, not, who, who don't know. <sighs> oh my gosh. This is, this is, and this is why we're kind of, <laughs> it's like, wow. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to be calm. My 20 minutes of meditating this morning was not for nothing. Imagine if I hadn't meditated. Imagine how angry I'd be right now. And I haven't even read the story yet. Okay, I read it out loud, that is. That's from KQED, and it's the California Report. Oh, goodness gracious. And they have their own podcast here at KQED, um, and this came out pretty recently. The title of the headline is, or the headline is, Fremont Ends Sex Ed for 4th through 6th grades, Graders After Curriculum Controversy. Uh, the teaching of sex ed in fourth through sixth grades has been eliminated in the city of Fremont after months of controversy over proposed new curriculum to comply with state law. The Fremont Unified School District Board of Education voted three to two early Thursday, this was this past week, to scrap the sex education program for fourth through sixth graders. Controversial content included, and it's controversial um, according to some people, but probably not the majority of people. Oh, I'm so fucking angry. Controversial content. Controversial should be in quotation marks. If I was re- if I was gonna like edit this article, that's what I would do. Controversial content included addressing the emotional aspects of sex and sexual activity. Because why would you want to fucking talk about that with people? Fucking idiots. The possibility that as adults, people may ha- may have more than one sexual partner. Imagine that. And inclusive LGBTQ lessons, like on transgender individuals and gender fluidity. Up until the vote, sex ed had been taught in Fremont schools to 5th and 6th graders since the 1980s and to 4th graders since 2011. The board approved the update to sex ed in 7th through 9th grades, which they were essentially required to do to comply with the 2016 California Healthy Youth Act. The majority of people here wanted to have sex education for 4th, 5th, and 6th grade, said school board member Larry Sweeney, who voted against the new sex ed instruction. We just couldn't agree on the content Huh. So the consequence is now there's no sex education for fourth, fifth, and sixth grades. Great job! Hundreds of parents, along with some teachers and current and former students, flooded four Fremont Unified School Board meetings in the past two months, deeply divided over how to teach students as young as fourth grade about sex and sexuality. Amid the dispute, some opponents and supporters have lodged accusations of racism, homophobia, and transphobia. My... Ugh, someone's talking about their fucking religion. I'm not gonna re... I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like share their words on the air because fuck no. <sighs> okay. Alright, that's no. Okay. Now I'm gonna quote a pediatrician and Fremont parent Sonia Khan, who said the educators should follow the data. It's very difficult to deal with the data that there's a large volume of people who feel that their opinions are as valid as facts, Khan said. As an American Muslim, Khan said she was sensitive to diverse religious beliefs. It's distressing to me to see parents of socially conservative, a with a small, uh, a small background, oh, not appreciate that 
what they are trying to dispense with is a critical tool for their own children to maintain the kind of abstinence that they are proponents of, she said. Khan said that she also was also concerned by the spread of misinformation in the debate, including some more explicit imagery and language being presented as part of the lesson plan when it was suggested material for parents, not children. See, the parents won't even fucking acknowledge it. Oh, my gosh. Sex ed was a critical tool that's being dis- dispensed with in the political fight and the belief that somehow there are liberals out there who are trying to sexualize your children, Khan said. The U.S. congressman for the area, Representative Ro Khanna, decried the decision. The repercussions of this are drastic. The board not only voted to reject CHYA, compliant education, but eliminated any sexual education for children at all, he said in a post on Facebook. Sex education is crucial for the safety of individuals of all ages, and this policy will silence voices, put students in danger, and increase overall risk in our communities. Some parents had objected to specific teachings, like the one in the sixth grade curriculum that detailed a couple who are who are dating and making out, and they have... And it's about consent. And apparently that's, they can't fucking teach children about consent. And that's why we live in a, oh my gosh. I haven't been this angry in a long time. Or maybe I have, I just haven't expressed it. Probably since last Friday. Oh my gosh. Okay, I can't even. All right. Uh, okay. Fremont Unified teacher Sharia Westra said that the contested sixth grade teaching taught a necessary lesson about consent that is now more important than ever in this Me Too movement. You can't say you have to wait until they are in college to get this information, or even high school. And if they are not going to get it, she added, they're going to go elsewhere and get inappropriate information or misinformation. And then we're going to be in the cycle we've been in for, in for years, where there is tons of sexual harassment and abuse. The number of students, a number of students were on board with the proposed sex ed plan and attended school board meetings to show their support, including LGBTQ teens who said they'd been bullied because of a lack of awareness around gender and sexual identities. Lena Yin, a Fremont Schools graduate who teaches sexual health in the East Bay, presented a petition to the board with more than 1,000 signatures from students who supported the new sex ed curriculum. The fact that what is best for the students and what the students are asking for was ignored is the most frustrating part of this whole process, Yin said. Following the vote, the school board said it would converse a panel of parents and experts to try to reach a consensus of sex ed instruction that respects the beliefs of parents and adheres to the state standards for next year. The California Healthy Youth Act set some of the most progressive sex ed requirements in the country. The curriculum includes instruction on same-sex relationships and different gender identities with additional lessons on consent and sexual assault. The law makes sexual education a requirement starting in seventh grade. When sex ed is taught at earlier ages, the law requires those lessons follow state guidelines. And that's what Fremont Unified did when they drafted the new lesson plans for fourth through sixth grade, said Denise Herman, associate superintendent of instruction. (sighs) What we used in the document that's published by the state of California, that's endorsed by pediatricians and by experts on puberty, health, and development to help us make those grade-level placements, Herman said. Other Bay Area school districts have had challenges implementing the new law, too. Last year, the nearly the nearby Cupertino Union School District backed off making a similar update to its curriculum after a debate like the one in Fremont erupted. So for all the folks, I'm... This is just so fucking... It's makes me think back. I mean, part of the show is finding patterns and things, and we got people, ignorant people, people who don't want to actually help folks, and it goes back to the, the pattern. It's similar to the what I was talking about previously with the folks who are experiencing the sweeps 
and people in positions of power who, instead of wanting to help people, kind of do the opposite. So here, there are people, and it's people speaking out for what they want, too. And that's another thing I didn't mention earlier, is that instead of, like, if you if the goal is to go in and assist people or help people or provide resources for people and you ask them what they want, you should give them what they want instead of doing the opposite. And that's exactly what's happening here. Oh, oh my gosh. I, ugh, ugh, how, ugh, ugh. Okay. All right. So <laughs> that's just enraging. That's incredibly enraging. You know what else is enraging? Apparently, a man who threatened shootings at Chicago gay bars has been accidentally freed by police. We're just going to go there. We're just going to go through all this shit that's happening. And, oh, my gosh. And this is from uh, newnownext.com. And this was written by Jeff Taylor, and it came out on May 3rd. Uh, he invoked Pulse, saying Orlando will be will come to Chicago, quote-unquote, and attacked his former boss at an Atlanta gay bar. Police are searching for a man who threatened... Yeah, they're searching. Yeah, after you fucking let him go. Police are searching for a man who threatened to bring violence to gay bars, including saying Orlando will come to Chicago, referencing the Pulse shooting after accidentally... That should also be in quotation marks, in my opinion. I'm going to add quotation marks to most of these articles I read because it's like, no, people in positions of power know exactly what they're fucking doing. They're harming people. And that's what they do because they can get away with it. <sighs> okay. Aren't you glad I provided that trigger warning at first? I should probably also provide it for myself so I don't get too... <sighs> okay. I'm going to finish the sentence. I'm going to finish the first sentence of the, <laughs> of the first paragraph. We can do this together. After accidentally releasing him from jail. So he was accidentally... Re- this dude was accidentally released from jail. Meanwhile, plenty of people who have not committed any crime at all, who maybe are in jail because they can't afford bail, or they were maybe, I don't know, smoking a plant... Or profiled those folks, they're still in jail, but this person who was actually violent has accidentally been released from jail. Shane Sleeper, is this person's name, is 31, and had been in custody since February. He had been facing misdemeanor charges of obstructing and resisting a peace officer as a result of his fleeing from police when they arrived at his home. It's also interesting how when this this guy, he's a white guy, if you couldn't tell, um, he flew, you know, he fled from police and he Somehow he was alive. Not only is he alive, but now he's free from jail. I wonder. I wonder why that is. Hmm. Okay. <sighs> I'm covering the mic. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. Okay. As a result of his fleeing from police when they arrived at his home to arrest him, but the state's attorney's office upgraded them to felonies. They failed to notify the sheriff's office. However, according to the sheriff's spokeswoman, Kara Smith, and they have these photos of him. Why? I don't know. Okay. uh, Preliminarily, it appears that the only cases he was being held on were dismissed and the sheriff's office never notified, was never notified of any additional charges that were brought, Smith said. Cook County State's Attorney's Office spokesman Robert Foley told the Chicago Tribune, it's the sheriff's office responsibility to maintain custody of defendants. Mr. Sleeper was in custody when the sheriff's office brought him to court yesterday, said Foley. In an emailed statement, he was arraigned in a felony felony trial courtroom where he was assigned a no-bail status and left in the custody of the sheriff's office. Sleeper was arraigned on multiple felony charges during a hearing on Tuesday on charges of falsely making a terrorist threat, hate crime, harassment, criminal trespassing, stalking, assault, and impersonating a police officer. 
during an earlier court date where he asked for his bail to be reduced, claiming he doesn't own any guns and that he is seeking counseling. The judge read out some of the threats he had made through email, Facebook, and voicemail. The threats included, I will bring harm and death, quote-unquote, you will be shot, quote-unquote, and, quote, uh, unquote, you're lucky I don't have a gun or people would be dead, and, quote, uh, if you don't kill yourself, I'm going to do it. So these are all quotes from this person. Ugh. Uh, he objected to the messages, saying they were taken out of context. His outburst led the judge to have him removed from court. Sleeper's last known address was on Chicago's north side. He previously lived in Atlanta, where he was accused of assaulting his former boss, the owner of the gay bar and restaurant 10. So, that sucks. Ugh, gross. Great. Okay. Here is something on the, well, it's, Okay, we're working to make things positive here. So this is a post I'm going to read aloud, and this is for folks here in San Francisco. Um, Yesterday we met with the sheriff, and they said they have we have no action in getting into the jails by June 5th to register voters. So there's an election coming up here in San Francisco for June 5th, electing a new mayor, and there are several other uh, propositions on the ballot as well that we'll be talking about before June 5th. And so ideally there was going to be this idea that folks who are incarcerated could vote as they should absolutely be able to. However, that's not quite happening. However, people are taking action, and this is like the positive part of the show, is when people take action and try to make do what's right. So I'm going to read this post, and it's also posted, shared on our weekly review page, and you can find that at facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. And this was shared a couple days ago, and you can go down, and there's a big graphic that says free the vote, and all this information is below it, so you can, it's public public post, so you can share that with your networks. So yesterday we met with a sheriff, and they said we have no action in getting into the jails by June 5th to register voters. Why? Because there are enough people in the county jail to impact any local election. Their job is to suppress the vote. Please copy, paste, and email the statement below to everyone you know in county jail. There's at least 3,000 to 4,000 votes in there. Free the vote. Please tag people. Uh, copy and paste the message below and email to, into the county jail. Free the vote. Please let everyone in your pod know they need to register to vote. You must complete two items, the voter registration and the vote by mail application. Ask for both of these items. May 21st, 2018 is the last day to register. May 29th, 2018 is the last day to request a vote by mail. We have given this sheet to your loved ones. We know that date they sent they sent it in. Please let them know when you receive it. The majority of the people in county jails can vote. If you meet the following, you can vote. If you are 18 years or older um, and a U.S. citizen. Since January 1st, 2017, the law is now you can vote if you're otherwise eligible to vote and not in state or federal prison or on parole. In other words, nearly every eligible voter in county jail can vote. The only exceptions are if you are waiting for transfer to state or federal prison or if you are serving a prison term in county jail because of an overcrowding contract between the CDCR and the local county. There are some important local issues on the ballot June 5th which will be decided. These are the people running for San Diego. Oh, this is San Diego. Excuse me. My mistake. Okay. Uh, Running for San Diego County District Attorney, uh, Genevieve Jones-Wright, Public Defender, Summer Stefan, uh, Current District Attorney, and these are the people running for the San Diego Sheriff, Bill Gore, San Diego Sheriff, Dave Myers. 
why is it important that you register to vote and have everyone else in your pod register? We found it impossible to get into the county jails to get permission to register eligible voters in county jail. You, you have the power to control this election. Your voices are strong. We are meeting resistance trying to get to you. Why would anyone block your vote? You have power that some don't want you to have. For example, in 2002, when Bonnie Duminis ousted Paul uh, Pfingst, she only won by 3,500 votes. There are more than 3,500 votes in the jail currently locked up. Let's free the vote. So again, my mistake earlier, this is for folks in San Diego or in the area. Please do share this as I know a lot of folks have contacts there as well. All right, cool. I did notice the phone was ringing, so if you are calling, um, please do call back. We're at 415-550-0551. Oh, it's some good news, if I can get to this article. All right, it's from the Washington Post. Federal prisons abruptly cancel policy that made it harder, costlier for inmates to get books. All right, we'll do this article, and then we'll take a bit of a music break. And this came out on May 3rd. It was written by Anne E. Marimau. Federal prison officials abruptly reversed a controversial policy Thursday that had made it harder and more expensive for thousands of inmates to receive books by banning direct delivery through the mail from publishers, bookstores, and book clubs. The restrictions were already in place in facilities in Virginia and California and were, start to st and were set to start this month at a prison in Florida. Under the rules, inmates in at least four facilities were, requ were required to order books only through a prison-approved vendor. Fucking, oh God. <sighs> and at three of the prisons to pay an extra 30% markup. That, the idea obviously should be that we want to help re rehabilitate people instead of, I mean, the prison industry is just such a fucking joke. The reversal came after two days of inquiries from the Washington Post asking about the vendor, the markup, and the rationale for the restriction. Prison officials said in an email Thursday that the Bureau had rescinded the memos and will review the policy to ensure we strike the right balance between maintaining the safety and security of our, institutional, of our institutions and inmate access to correspondence and reading materials. You could also just let people out. That might help uh, really... Uh, might really help people a lot more instead of limiting what they have access to. Officials declined to identify the vendor and explain the costs added to the book purchase prices. For months, the restrictions meant inmates could not have books shipped free from friends and relatives, but also could not have books sent directly from online retailers like Amazon or book clubs. Using online retailers or book clubs are two avenues many facilities employ as a way to preserve access but reduce opportunities to alter books or use them to smuggle drugs or other contraband. And f <sighs> the, the excuses that they make is so ridiculous. I can't. Heaven forbid someone might actually want to read a fucking book. You shouldn't have to be rich to read, said Tara Libert, whose D.C.-based Free Minds Book Club has had reading material returned from two California prisons in recent months and has stopped shipping to two others because of the policy. The head of the federal prison system said during a congressional committee hearing in April that he was not aware of the memos his wardens issued restricting book deliveries and that he would clear up any, this is in quotes, uh, misperception that prison officials are withholding books. Concerns from House Judiciary Committee Democrats were stirred when lawmakers learned of the policy at one Florida facility. However, memos show the practice extending elsewhere in the country. Michelle Bonner, executive director of the D.C. Corrections Information Council, 
which monitors facilities where district residents are locked up, said limiting book buying options for inmates stifles their ability to access information and their ability to better themselves with books. Libert said she was thrilled to learn from the Post about the reversal Thursday and that federal prison officials recognize the importance of having unfettered access for books to books. She also said she planned to remain vigilant to ensure this is a firm commitment and that they truly understand the educational and rehabilitative impact of books. The statement from the Federal Bureau of Prison of Public Affairs, Prisons Public Affairs Office on Thursday while pulling back the policy noted that inmate purchased books provide an avenue for introduction of contraband. They're like just talking about banning books is what it is. They're finding fucking excuses. Oh, my goodness. Goodness, goodness. Okay. Again, things are kind of backwards here when they're like looking to... Okay. In announcing the policy in March at the United States Penitentiary, Lee in Southern Virginia... The warden described the heightened mail monitoring procedures as necessary to block people's attempts to smuggle in drugs through the mail. Blah, blah. Fuck you. Oh, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. That's my response to that. It's unclear Thursday how quickly the message from Washington would filter out to the prison facilities throughout the country. We are working with the wardens to ensure they are clear that we are not implementing restrictions on book ordering at this time, and we will follow up as soon as all issues have been addressed, a bureau spokesman said. Last year, the New York State Corrections Department implemented new restrictions on packages for inmates, including used books, as part of an effort to combat contraband in state prisons. Uh, the policy required inmates to order through a small number of state-approved vendors. Governor Andrew Cuomo quickly rescinded the pilot program after an outcry from families and prison reform advocates. Memos from individual wardens to their inmates had described the restriction and how inmates would need to adjust their book buying. The memos outlined a cumbersome seven-step ordering process that required inmates to submit their requests with the book title, author, and esoteric 13-digit ISBN number of each volume. The cost to the inmate included a 30% markup, according to memos for USP Atwater, the Central Valley facility in California with 1,200 inmates, and USP Lee, which had about 1,300 inmates. Book orders had been processed weekly, and inmates were limited to five softcover books per mailing, according to the memos first reported by Injustice Today and obtained by the nonprofit Can Do, which advocates clemency for nonviolent drug offenders. At the D.C. jail, officials show delivery allow delivery of newspapers, newsletters, and softcover books directly from a publisher, bookstore, book club, and community-based organization. Amy Lopez, the former head of educational programs for the Bureau of Prisons during the final months of the Obama administration, reviewed the book ordering procedures this week and said that she is concerned the limits will significantly slow down the distribution of books in prisons and contribute to reduced literacy. When you restrict reading materials, you're contributing to lower literacy rates, and it limits inmates' connections with the community, said Lopez, who is now overseeing education at the D.C. Department of Corrections. The policy already was cutting off access to educational programs like the Free Minds Book Club, whose members are D.C. residents locked up in federal facilities throughout the country. The group's 600 members in about 50 prisons receive a dozen titles a year and have most recently read Hidden Figures and the memoir I Am Malala. The program pays for the books and ships directly through Amazon. Amazon Chief Executive Jeffrey P. Bezos owns the Washington Post. I didn't know that. I really didn't know that. Interesting. Okay. Inmates answer book discussion questions and correspond with the nonprofit staff members. 
With limited access to book reviews, inmates often don't know which titles to choose, making the directive's requirement that inmates proactively pick titles more problematic, Lippert said. At a congressional hearing last month, lawmakers pressed the 45 administration to roll back the new orders and ensure the policy is not being adopted throughout the system that houses about 184,000 inmates. Bureau of Prisons Director Mark S. Inch, that is his name, Mark S. Inch, suggested that restrictions were one way individual prisons are trying to stop people from bringing contraband into secure facilities. Again, with this contraband stuff. Um, maybe if people had more access to books and like a better lifestyle, if while they are fucking held in cages, it's just, it's like, I can't, okay. All right. <sighs> Representative Jerry Nadler said the book ordering limits seem to be at odds with the Bureau's mission to rehabilitate and educate inmates and that it would be particularly damaging for indigent prisoners. Can you make sure that people don't have the money? How, wait, can you make sure that people who don't have the money have access to books? Nadler asked the director. Inch assured lawmakers that inmates still have access to books through prison libraries. I will certainly communicate if there is a misperception that we are withholding educational, recreational books, legal books of any form, because that's certainly not the case, Inch said. Uh -huh. House Democratic lawmakers said Thursday that in the two weeks since the hearing, they have not received a follow-up response from federal prison officials. Here on the show, we are would like a world of uh, prison abolition and the more restrictive you are for folks who are currently incarcerated, the worse things are. And again, a similar situation, people in positions of power making things worse for others. That's the theme of the day, theme of the life. It's deeply upsetting. Oh, I think a music break would be very helpful. Oh, right about now. So yeah. Um. Oh goodness, you know I wish I had more positive things to say, and uh, oh goodness, but you know this is where we're at. So that's where we're at. We're gonna work on playing some more music for you all here, and hopefully this will be coming up soon. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. We are here on the corner of 21st and Florida here in the Mission District. Coming up next will be Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective, followed by a couple of comedy shows. There's an open mic. Well, Common Thread Collective is an open mic. It goes from 3 to 6. Come by. You can speak poetry, share your music, your words. And there's a comedy open mic at 6, from 6 to 8. And then there's the Comedy Clubhouse, which is a booked comedy show, I believe. That starts around 8 p.m. So please do stay tuned for that. And we are trying to get this technical technical difficulty. Sometimes things work better than others. So I'm going to look for some other music that hopefully will make you all feel better. And why not some Dead Kennedys?
Chavez room. Space bottle, square cat. Say, caramba, partners, where's the party at? Girls might take a chance. My friend said no. Be cool, bro. You want to dance slow. Learn to ask a mia mana con respeto. UFO's got a radio. Little Julian singing soft and low. Back to weekly review. That was Rai Cooter with. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, Poor Man's Shangri La. And before that, Dead Kennedys with California Ubersalis. Next few articles. <sighs> goodness gracious. All right, I'm just going to read them. And yeah, oh, goodness. So this was from the Los Angeles Times. Sanctuary state fight at local level may be more orchestrated than organic. This is written by Jasmine Uloa, and this came out on May 2nd, 2018. With California and the 45 administration locked in a legal battle over immigration policies, a state Republican leader and an, I'm going to use undocumented instead of the word illegal, an undocumented uh, immigration critic are quietly offering to help communities fight the state's new quote-unquote sanctuary law. 
County officials are scheduled to get advice on how to challenge the law at a private meeting scheduled next week in Fresno, according to a copy of an invitation from the Fresno County Republican Party chairman that was obtained by the Los Angeles Times. The Fresno meeting follows growing opposition in Southern California to the state's pro-immigrant pro or anti-Trump administration stance. It appears to reveal a behind-the-scenes effort by Republicans to mobilize some of the state's most conservative communities in a counter-strike against the resistance movement. Listed speakers include Sean Steele. What is with these folks with the two, the double S names? What does that mean? Like the other guy, the Shane Sleeper. And then we got another double S. Interesting, interesting. Interesting, interesting. Ugh, okay, a member of the Republican National Committee and the former chairman of the state GOP and Susan Tully. I'm guessing she's a white woman. The National Field Director of the Federation of American uh, for American Immigration Reforms. Steele and Tully are expected to offer advice and legal assistance to all jurisdictions according to the invitation. The sanctuary law passed along party lines last year was the centerpiece in a package of bills designed by Jer Governor Jerry Brown that offer protections to some 2.3 million people living in the state. And they keep on using the word illegally. I'm going to fucking just say um, a lot of us don't believe in borders. And how are you going to come and create these imaginary borders and then create these laws that are not necessarily right. So I'm going to not use that word. Um, let's say that they're undocumented. Uh, limiting collaboration between law, local law enforcement and federal immigration agencies. Republicans who will be in San Diego this weekend for their annual state party convention see the battle over the law as a key component of their turnout strategy as the party works to defend GOP members of Congress. Their defeat could allow Democrats to gain control of the House in November. A state GOP official said that the party leaders didn't know about the Fresno effort. After initially declining to comment, Fresno County Party Chairman Fred Vanderhoof said Tuesday he was solely responsible for the meeting, but he declined to say who was invited other than elected officials in the Central Valley. I thought I could get some leaders together to inform them of what elected officials have been doing in other jurisdictions in Southern California, he said. Most California tariffs fiercely oppose the sanctuary state law. Ugh. Soon they'll have to implement it. The invitation for the meeting Monday suggests three options for local governments to counter the law, naming the places where the strategies have been used, passing a local ordinance to refuse compliance in Los Alamos, Los Alamos, excuse me, Los Alamitos, filing a brief in support of current or future litigation in Orange County, or introducing their own lawsuit in Huntington Beach. These are places that have good ideas, said Steele, who confirmed he planned to speak and added that there could be many more ways to oppose a California law that he called criminal. Fuck him, he's a fucking criminal. Excuse me. And Un quote unquote unconstitutional. The local movement against the law began in March in the Orange County suburb of Los Alamitos, where more than 100 people attended a raucous meeting as council members voted to try to exempt the city from the sanctuary law. Weeks later, the all Republican Orange County Board of Supervisors voted in favor of a resolution to join U.S. Attorney. They voted to join Jeff Sessions. That shows how fucking backwards these people are against California over the new immigration laws. One of those who voted to join the suit was Steele's wife, Orange County Supervisor Michelle Steele. The couple were among a small group that greeted 45 on the tarmac on his first visit to California as president in March. 45 has since tweeted praise for Orange County and its pushback against sanctuary policies. Other cities in Orange County, including Yorba Linda, Buena Park, Huntington Beach, and Mission Viejo, have also started to take action against the state laws aimed at protecting immigrants from increased immigration enforcement and deportations. 
The invitation to meet next week's the invitation to next week's Fresno meeting, along with emails obtained by civil rights groups through public records requests, raised questions about whether the local actions are more orchestrated than organic. Of course they are. Tully is the head of the national organization classified as an anti-immigrant hate group by the nonprofit Southern Poverty Law Center, a label FAIR has vehemently rejected. She has been speaking against the sanctuary law since at least June when she addressed a group of Republican women in San Diego that was planning to take action against the legislation before it was enacted. A spokesman for FAIR's legal team, the Immigration Reform Law Institute, has disputed that either it or FAIR approached California cities, saying local officials were instead seeking out the group. But in mid-March, according to public records obtained by the American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California, Tully emailed each member of the Yorba Linda City Council and the mayor to ask the city to file a brief in support of Sessions' lawsuit against California. She said that her group was searching for cities and counties to join the case and that its legal team would represent the city for free. On Tuesday, a city spokeswoman confirmed that Fair made the offer to help file the brief. Even so, Ira Melman, a FAIR spokesman, said he didn't know who initiated contact in Yorba Linda, but, ag- but argued that opposition to the law emerged from local governments. We have been working with locally based groups in California for a long time, Melman said. We are more than happy to help if they ask for advice. The sanctuary law, named the California Values Act, prevents law enforcement officers from holding and questioning people for federal immigration agents in many cases and limits them from sharing the release dates of of some county jail inmates who are in the country undocumented. Stop using the fucking word illegal. It's fucking gross. It is one of the three state immigration laws that Sessions has challenged in federal court charging that Brown and lawmakers are attempting to keep federal immigration officials from doing their jobs. Speaking to law enforcement officers in Sacramento in March, Sessions said Democratic elected officials in California were advancing the political agendas of... I'm not even going to fucking quote this. I don't even have words for Jeff Sessions. I have words for him. (sighs) Gonna gonna breathe. It's just so fucking angry when people in positions of power are causing so much harm. And speaking untruths. Okay. But a recent statewide poll found strong support. 56% of voters surveyed for the sanctuary law with high approval numbers among uh, Latinx, African-Americans, young voters, and women. More than 50% also largely opposed efforts by local officials to opt out of the law. State Senator Kevin DeLeon, Democrat from Los Angeles, the former state Senate leader who wrote the sanctuary law, said that planned event in Fresno is proof positive that the White House, the blah, 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 blah. Okay. I guess now the coffee is kicking in. The Republican National Committee and the California Republican Party are working in con- in concert with extremist organizations like FAIR in a desperate attempt to secure votes in November. He said he and fellow legislators were prepared to defend the law from legal challenges from the Trump administration, but they did not anticipate local le- elected officials going along with the kind of strategy that DeLeon linked to the anti uh, undocumented immigrant campaign surrounding Proposition 187 in 1994. The ballot initiative, which had political roots in Orange County, uh, would have denied public services to people in the country illegally. It was approved by voters, but was eventually struck down in court. Pro-immigrant and civil rights groups have attempted to counter opposition to this sanctuary law, and what activists said was an increasing number of hate incidents, ethnic slurs, and anti-Semitic comments at various council meetings. Days after Los Alamitos passed its ordinance to opt out of the law, the ACLU of Southern California and other civil rights groups filed a lawsuit against the city challenging the ordinance's legality. 
Mayor Troy Edgar is trying to raise funds to fight the suit. On Tuesday, Joe Rod- John Rodney, communications director with the California Immigrant Policy Center, said the meeting in Fresno showed that what has been happening is a manufactured tantrum in the service of a hate-filled agenda that is totally unrepresentative of California as a whole. Fresno could be fertile ground for expanding the ranks of sanctuary law opponents. Former Sheriff Joe Arpaio, I would spit right now if I was the kind of person who spit indoors or outdoors. I don't really spit much. Um, so that's how I feel about Joe Arpaio. Um, accused of racial, he was accused of racial profiling of, Latin, of Latinx folks. Um, he made an appearance last year at the GOP fundraiser there. And Fresno County Sheriff Margaret Mims has been an outspoken critic of the sanctuary law, saying that her deputies and immigration and custom enforcement officials have have had a close relationship. <sighs> Excuse me. Fresno County Supervisor Buddy Mendez said Tuesday that the county had no intention of taking action against the state law. He said he said he was one of the three Republican Fresno supervisors invited to the meeting next week, but he said he declined to attend. Three county supervisors discussing such an issue in a private session, he said, would be a violation of state law that guarantees the public the right to participate in local legislative meetings. It's not clear which other local officials were invited to attend the meeting, both the law and the local opposition to it. Mendez said, are quote-unquote Seinfeld deals, political shows about nothing because the federal law will overrule state law and state law will overrule local law. What are you going to prove one way or or another, Mendez said. Wow. Huh. Okay, so you can find the full article in the Los Angeles Times, and again, it was written by uh, Jasmine Uloa. Oh, my goodness. Again, people in positions of power (laughs) trying to harm others. Um. Uh, all right. The next article. Oh fuck. Um. It's, there's so many things that are happening that are just. Uh, I don't really have a way of setting up the just to to talk about it and to share it and it's it's happening and to not talk about it I feel is worse. And it's articles from the root. Um, lynching 2.0 white family charged with murdering two black men dismembering bodies and this was written by Michael Harriet, and it came out on Wednesday after a four day search more Oklahoma police have charged a man um, and his brother their mother and their mother's boyfriend with murdering a pair of 21 year old black men sawing their bodies into pieces and tossing the dismembered corpses into a nearby pond according to WJLA-TV, when Elise Ramon Smith and Jaron Moreland were reported missing on April 14th, family members, neighbors, and authorities began searching frantically for these for the two men. Four days later, on April 18th, police discovered their severed bodies in a pond. Law enforcement officers arrested three people the same day, 42-year-old Johnny Shane Barker, 22-year-old Kevin Garcia Butler, and 16-year-old Brett Garcia Butler. Police later arrested Crystal Rochelle Butler, 40, and Kevin and Brett's mother. According to the court documents, Kevin Garcia Butler told police that he drove his younger brother to a grocery store parking lot to purchase a firearm from Moreland after Brett arranged the gun sale on Craigslist. Moreland and Smith, the black men, got into the back of the brother's van, and the two white men said they heard a gun being racked. Sergeant Jeremy Lewis of the Moore Police Department explained, so one of them fired four rounds. After killing Moreland and Smith, Garcia Butler and Brett took the bodies 
to a nearby house where they met up with their mother's boyfriend, Barker, who helped them clean the van. Then all three men allegedly removed Moreland's and Smith's clothes, burned them in a barrel, tied the deceased men's bodies to cinder blocks, and tossed them into a pond. KFOR reports that the police found the white Chrysler town and country Chrysler van surrounded by cleaning products and a power washer. The inside of the van was splattered with blood, and a chainsaw and jigsaw were soaking in water. Police later searched the pond with the family outside the property and found the dismembered corpses tied with tarp and attached to cement blocks in the water. Brett is charged with first-degree murder, second-degree murder, unlawful removal of a dead body, desecration of a human corpse, and possession of a firearm after delinquent adjudication. Garcia Butler is is charged with accessory after the fact and unlawful removal of a dead body. Barker is charged with accessory after the fact, unlawful removal of a body, and desecration of a human corpse. Crystal Butler is also charged with accessory to second-degree murder after the fact. (sighs) We're just glad that we got some closure and we found him, said Moreland's uncle, Anthony Anderson, as he waited nearby while police recovered the bodies. I'm going to have a few more moments of silence.
And welcome back to the weekly review. Uh, um, <sighs> wishing we lived in a different world and wondering how that can happen. And unless we actually address what's happening, then I don't think things can change much. And also, I I find this a difficult um, wanting to share what's happening and acknowledge what's happening and not further traumatize folks. And that's something that I find both online and with the show as well. I do want to talk about what's happening and what folks are going through and witness that. And in the process, also not hurt folks more with that. And I feel like it's a difficult, I'm, I still struggle with that on a daily basis. Um, not to lose sight of positive changes that are happening and people working together and at the same time to still hold people in positions of power accountable and to, to hold folks who cause harm accountable. And I would recognize that a lot of folks who listen to this pro program um, are aware of the systems that are in place that harm folks and people who continue to cause violence that way. And to recognize that it's a thing, it exists. And I think there are still folks out there that we all know, or that a lot of us know, who would rather say that, oh, this isn't happening, or would gaslight or deny that it's happening. And until folks, more and more people, can at least accept this is what's happening or believe that it's happening, then we can't really move forward. And I think about all the pain that folks go through losing loved ones like that. Uh, last night, uh, there was the Black and Brown United uh, organization. Folks had a protest outside and a speak out outside the Mission Police Station. As the San Francisco Police Department, they've murdered many people. And the mother of Mario Woods spoke, and she was talking about him. And she mentioned he was only five foot five and was maybe 150 pounds or so. And here's the idea of losing a son, the idea of losing a family member. Can't imagine what that's like. And then adding more description to it and more, you know, for those of us who didn't know him, just to try to understand how just the police narrative is always so flawed. And even though we see that with the when there is the the video footage, and just how do we hold space for the the folks who are grieving and constantly grieving, and also at the same time seek to hold the people who have caused this harm accountable. And for the other folks who, their coworkers who, the other police officers who remain silent about this. I can't imagine the, the strength required to, to live through something like that, to have a loved one taken, and then to have the state like laugh in your face about it and to, to deny that anything wrong happened. So I think about that and think about all the 
the people every day who are harmed or assaulted, either by law enforcement or by other folks who have been indoctrinated by white supremacy or misogyny or transphobia or xenophobia or anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, just onward, on and on, classism, the ableism, the, the words go on and on, and it really does impact people's behavior and how we treat one another, and I think on many, many levels. There's like the extreme level where people take other people's lives, and then there's the on the policy level where a lot of people don't have access to health care, access to housing, or access to work, or access to food, or access to clean drinking water. Or people aren't able to take care of their families, or people are incarcerated. And it's so systemic. Ugh. Ugh. Next up, it's going to deal with similarities, and I guess it's easy to find connections in all of these stories that we're reading today and often on the show, and wanting to, to bear witness to it and to acknowledge that it's happening. I don't think changes can happen if the majority of people refuse to acknowledge that it's happening or refuse to see the links in between power structures and systemic racism and racial capitalism and state violence. So this is an article. I'm going to take the mic out of the stand again. That seems to be my... There's a nice stand here, yet I just feel the need to hold the mic here. And this is from ProPublica. And it came out on May 3rd. It was written by A.C. Thompson, uh, Ali Winston, and Jake uh, Hanrahan. Ranks of notorious hate group include active duty military. A Marine took part in the violent assaults in Charlottesville last summer and later bragged about it online with other members of Adam Waffen, an extremist group preparing for a race war. The involvement of current or former service members, often with sophisticated weapons training, in white supremacist groups has long been a concern. And the story was co-published with Frontline PBS. The 18-year-old, excited by his handiwork at the bloody rally in Charlottesville, Virginia last summer, quickly went online to boast. He used the handle uh, Vasilis the Greek. Today cracked three skulls open with virtually no damage to myself, the young man wrote on August 12, 2017. Vasilios uh, Pistolis had come to the now infamous Unite the Right rally eager for such violence. He belonged to a white supremacist group known as Adam Waffen Division, a secretive neo-Nazi organization whose members say they are preparing for, the, for a coming race war in the U.S., in online chats leading up to the rally, uh, Pistolis has had been encouraged to be vicious within, with any counter-protesters, maybe even sodomize someone with a knife. He'd responded by saying he was prepared to kill someone if shit goes down. One of Pistolis's victims that weekend was Emily Gorsensky, a data scientist and trans woman from Charlottesville who had shown up to confront the rally's hundreds of white supremacists. 
In an online post, Pistolis delighted in how he had drop-kicked... I'm not even going to fucking repeat the terminology, the words he's using, uh, during a violent nighttime march on the campus of University of Virginia. He also wrote about a blood-soaked flag he'd kept as a memento. Wow, you really care about the fucking flag. Not my blood, he took care to note. At the end of the weekend that shocked much of the country, Pistolis returned to his everyday life serving in the U.S. Marine Corps. One of the many white supremacist organizations that have sprung up in the past few years, Adam Waffen, is among the more most extreme, more extreme, espousing the overthrow of the U.S. government through acts of political violence and guerrilla warfare. Journalists with ProPublica and Frontline gained insight into Adam Waffen's ideology, aims, and membership after obtaining seven months of messages from a confidential chat room used by the group's members. The chat logs, as well as interviews with a former member, reveal Adam Waffen has attracted a mixture of young men, fans of fringe heavy metal music, a private investigator, firearms aficionados, living in more than 20 states. But a number, of, but a number are current or former members of the U.S. military. ProPublica and Frontline have identified three Adam Waffen members or associates who are currently employed by the Army or Navy. Another three served in the armed forces in the past. Pistolis, who remains an active-duty Marine, left Adam Waffen in a dispute late in 2017 and joined up with another white supremacist group. Reporters made the identifications through dozens of interviews, a range of social media, and other online posts, and a review of the 250,000 confidential messages obtained earlier this year. Joshua Beckett, who trained Adam Waffen members in firearms and hand-to-hand combat last fall, served in the Army from 2011 to 2015, according to service records. Online, Beckett, 26, had said that he worked as a combat engineer while in the Army. Combat engineers are the Army's demolitions experts. In Adam Waffen chats, Beckett, using the handle Johan Donarson, said he was building assault rifles and would happily construct weapons for his fellow members. Give me the parts and the receiver and I'll get it all together for you, Beckett wrote in August 2017. Beckett also wrote about suffering from PTSD as a result of combat in Afghanistan and how his time in uniform caused him to radically revise his political beliefs, prompting him to abandon mainstream conservatism in favor of national socialism. In online discussions, Beckett encouraged Adam Waffen members to enlist in the military so as to become pro- uh, proficient in the use of weaponry and then turn their expertise against the U.S. government, which he believed to be controlled by a secret cabal of Jews. Sure. Sure, Jan. The army itself woke me up to, a, to race and the war woke me up to the Jews, Beckett wrote, adding, the U.S. military gives great training. You learn how to fight and survive. Another Adam Waffen member used the chats to talk about the combat he saw during the U.S. troop surge in Afghanistan. I was in the infantry in the army in Afghanistan, and we did a lot of shit, the member wrote. He said in the army, he said the army wanted him to become a chemical weapons specialist, but he chose to join the infantry. He spent his time, he wrote, blasting lead into, and I'm not going to read this other epithet. Ugh. ProPublica and Frontline specifically identified Pistolis and Beckett through interviews with a former Adam Waffen member who knew them, the group's internal records, and the men's digital footprints. In his online activities, Pistolis left many clues to his identity, including pictures of himself he uploaded to private white supremacist chat rooms and photos of himself on his public Facebook page.
Beckett's internet handles and Facebook content also helped us to confirm him as the man who had spent five years in the army before joining Adam Waffen. And they have a frontline video here. Um, it says uh, he's a proud neo-Nazi Charlottesville attacker and a U.S. Marine, and perhaps we'll play this after the article. Reporters contacted Beckett via phone and Facebook messages, but he did not get a but did not get a response. Beckett's Facebook page features an image of 45 driving a white convertible emblazoned with the number 1488, a white supremacist code, and a call for whites to jump in the car. Ugh. In a series of phone and email exchanges, Pistolis claimed he did not attend the Charlottesville rally and did not assault Gorsensky or anyone else. His online messages about Gorsensky, he said, were nothing more than jokes. He admitted to harboring alt-right, quote-unquote, or white supremacist beliefs, though he claimed he had infiltrated... Adam Waffen, and infiltrated in quotations, on behalf of another extremist group and was never actually a member. Pistolis, who indicated to reporters that he is stationed in North Carolina, pulled down his personal Twitter account shortly after being contacted by ProPublica and Frontline. He also took down his account on Gab, a discussion channel favored by white supremacists, many of whom have been banned from Twitter and other social media platforms. His postings indicate that after leaving Adam Waffen last November, other members accused him of risking unwanted attention for the group by showing up with Adam Waffen flag at a rally in Tennessee. And he became an active participant in online forums involving the Traditionalist Workers' Party, another neo-Nazi group. Since May 2017, three people involved with Adam Waffen have been charged with five murders. Devon Arthurs, an early Adam Waffen recruit, is facing trial for allegedly murdering two other members of the group in Florida. And a teenager in Virginia stands accused of murdering his, of killing his ex-girlfriend's parents who had tried to keep their daughter away from him. The 17-year-old who was in the process of joining Adam Waffen is being tried as a juvenile. Adam Waffen, a member, member Samuel Woodward, 20, has pleaded not guilty to the, in the slaying of Blaise Bernstein, a gay Jewish college student whose body was discovered in a Southern California park early this year. Authorities believe Woodward stabbed Bernstein more than 20 times. Despite the mounting body count, it is unclear just how aggressive law enforcement at the federal or local level has been in investigating the group. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. None of the men charged in the homicides had a military background. Background. The FBI had no comment when asked about Adam Waffen. <laughs> One Adam Waffen member caught up in a high-profile criminal case has a quite direct link to the armed forces. Adam Waffen's founder, Brandon Russell, who's 22, was arrested last year after investigators discovered a cache of weapons, detonators, and volatile chemical weapon compounds in his home. And we have the, f we see the phone ringing. So let's see. Attention business owner or manager. Friend. All right. And clearly there was that was a machine on the line. So let's continue. Let's continue. Let's finish up this article here. At the time of his arrest, Russell. Okay, let's see. Oh, yeah. So we got Brandon Russell, who's the Adam Buffins founder. He's 22 years old. He was arrested last year after investigators discovered a cache of weapons, detonators, and volatile chemical compounds in his home, including a cooler full of HMTP. Oops, excuse me. 
<laughs> HMTD, a powerful explosive often used by bomb makers, and ammonium nitrate, the substance used by Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City attack. Russell was also in possession of two radioactive isotopes, Americ- Americ- americium and thorium. In September 2017, he pleaded guilty to a single charge of unlawful possession of explosives and was later sentenced to five years in federal prison. At the time of his arrest, Russell 22 had been serving in the 53rd Brigade Special Troops Battalion of Florida's Army National Guard. A spokesman for the Marine Corps, Major Brian Block, said the corp would be looking into Pistolis and would likely open a formal probe into his activities last summer. There is no place. Okay, this is a quote. There is no place for racial hatred or extremism in the Marine Corps, Block said in a written statement. Bigotry and social and racial extremism run contrary to our core values. That's their quote. We cannot talk about that afterwards. He added, the guidance to Marines is clear. Participation in supremacist or extremist organizations or activities is a violation of Department of Defense and Marine Corps orders and can lead to expulsion from the service. Contacted by ProPublica and Frontline, Carla Gleason, a Department of Defense spokesperson and Air Force major, said the military relies on its commanders to identify problematic activities and respond judiciously. What we're doing is empowering commanders at every level to counsel service members on their conduct and take disciplinary action where appropriate, she said. I have a lot of feelings about this whole situation. We do recognize the right to free speech and thought, said Gleason, but she added the Department of Defense, um, and I'm going to just interrupt myself here for a moment, that there was a post I saw pretty recently and with just how, I forget, oh, I wish I had the, the specifics in front of me, but it was pretty much how they changed the Department of War to the Department of Defense in terms of the naming and how we, we consider that. So now what was the Department of War we now call the Department of Defense? All right, I'm continuing reading on this. Uh, but she added, the Department of Defense insists that extreme, excuse me, <laughs> that service members observe the military's policies prohibiting discrimination and extremist behavior. ProPublica and Frontline documented Pistolis's role in Charlottesville through an analysis of photos and video footage from the rally and his own line admissions, including a statement Pistolis posted to an Adam Waffen chat room saying he kicked Emily Gorsensky during the march at the University of Virginia. ProPublica and Frontline contacted the University of Virginia Police Department to check the accuracy of the material involving Pistolis at the Unite the Right rally and to see if there was an investigation underway. Sergeant Casey Accord reviewed the material and later said his agency would investigate Pistolis's apparent role in the melee that occurred during the torchlit march on school property. Reporters also showed pictures, video, and chat posts to Gorsensky the activist attacked in Charlottesville. While she didn't suffer any significant significant physical injuries that night, the experience, Gorsensky said, was profoundly traumatizing, and she now has faced frequent harassment from fascists and white supremacists since the rally. She says she plans to move out of the country. Gorsensky quickly identified Porcellus as the man who kicked her. He's telling the truth in those logs about what happened, she said. Like many white supremacist groups, Adam Waffen initially coalesced in cyberspace. The founders and early members met each other through a fascist discussion forum called Iron March, which is now defunct. But in the past few years, the organization, it is estimated to have 80 to 100 members, has moved into the real world. Adam Waffen has conducted weapons and other training exercises in at least four states, according to the chat logs and interviews. Current and former members of the military have found that their skills are highly valued by Adam Waffen and have assumed leadership roles within the group. Drawing on their battlefield experience, Marines and soldiers have helped to shape the group into a loose collection of armed cells, according to the chat logs and people with direct knowledge of the organization. 
there are there has been long a worry there has there has long been a worrisome if not fully understood nexus between the military and the white supremacist movement over the past half century many of the movement's key leaders have come from the ranks of the military including george lincoln rockwell commander of the american nazi party ku klux klan leader louis beam and aryan nations founder richard butler not to be oh there's a musician named richard butler it's a shame that this other person has that name Pete Simi, co-author of the book American Swastika and an associate professor at Chapman University in California, said white supremacists often draw inspiration from the armed forces. Extremist culture tends to be paramilitary. The Klan, for instance, is a clearly paramilitary organization. It was started by former military officers, said Simi. A lot of traditional neo-Nazi groups tend to emulate military structure. Some, some skinhead groups do that as well. Organizations like Adam Waffen, he said, need military people who have explosives experience, firearms experience, combat fighting experience that they can pass on to other members. But there's also another factor in Simi's view. I think there's also a credibility aspect to it. In that, it gives more credibility to the group to have people who served in the U.S. military. It brings a certain gravitas. Last year, nearly 25% of active duty service members surveyed by the Military Times said they'd encountered white nationalists within the ranks. The publication polled more than 1,000 service members. The results are jarring in a number of ways, not least because each branch of the armed forces has regulations that bar service members from joining white supremacist organizations. Army policy, for example, forbids soldiers from participating in extremist groups that foster racial, gender, or ethnic, ethnic, ethnic hatred or intolerance. The Marine Corps has a similar regulation. Order 1900.16, which mandates swift penalties for Marines caught engaging in extremist or supremacist activities. Air Force directives note that airmen who participate in racist organizations can face court-martial for disobedience. For Simi, a key question in whether the Department of Defense and various military branches are effectively enforcing these policies by screening volunteers as they enter the service and thoroughly investigating reports of extremist activity by service members. If the figures in the Military Times survey are anywhere close to credible, then there's clearly a problem that isn't being addressed, Simi said. A former Marine who currently works for a government intelligence agency told ProPublica and Frontline that the military's seriousness about combating white supremacists is in its in its ranks can vary. At the command well, at the command level and publicly, the military takes any extremism seriously, the ex-Marine said. There's a zero tolerance policy regarding Nazis. We defeated them in World War II and they have no business currently serving in the US military. At the unit level, I believe there's a willful ignorance, a former Marine added. If neo-Nazis aren't allowed to enlist in the military, and if nobody I know is a neo-Nazi, there must not be any within my unit, seems to be a standard. It's difficult to take seriously that which you don't believe exists. Bastolas appears to have gotten involved in the, ne the neo-Nazi movement long before he joined the armed forces. In online conversations with members of Adam Waffen, Pistolis said that he'd started hanging around with the National Socialist Movement and other skinheads when he was 16. He listed some of his favorite books, including Mein Kampf was one, and the autobiography of American Nazi Party leader George Lincoln Rockwell was another. A third was The Turner Diaries and the notorious 1978 novel about race war in America that inspired McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. Pistola said in the chats he was also a fan of Siege, a 563-page tome 
preaching the virtues of assassination, political terrorism, and guerrilla warfare against the U.S. government that has become something of a Bible for Adam Waffen members. After joining Adam Waffen, Pistolas took on the leadership role in the summer of 2017, running the North Carolina cell and vetting new recruits to the group, according to the chat messages, as well as a former member. Before the Unite the Right Valley, Pristolis, who is a slim with dark, close-cropped hair and a distinctive widow's peak, sketched out designs for two flags he wanted to bring to the event. One was yellow and black and featured a coiled snake poised to strike and the logo of the Golden Dawn, a Greek fascist party linked to murders and violence in, the in that country. On the other flag, he blended the stars and bars of the Confederate battle flag with the Sonor Sonnenrad, a circular emblem used by the Nazis and adopted by the new generation of white supremacists. Pistolas, Pistolas uh, paid a company to manufacture the flags and started and shared a picture of them online in a private chat room for people attending the rally. The chat logs were obtained by Unicorn Riot, a leftist media collective. Over a span of roughly two months, Pistolas posted at least 82 messages in the chat room, which was hosted by Discord, an online messaging service aimed at video gamers. His views were quite clear. Charlottesville Vice Mayor Wes Bellamy, who is African American, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna quote this person, uh, Pistolos. I'm not gonna quote him. Um, just a lot of uh, racist, anti-black, and anti-Semitic comments from him. I'm not gonna repeat them on the air uh, or ever. In Charlottesville, Pistolos wearing a black and white Adidas tracksuit was among the hundreds of torch-bearing young men who marched onto the campus of the University of Virginia after sunset on August 11th, chanting Blood and Soil, a, a slogan of the Third Reich, and performing straight-arm Nazi salutes. Photos and video from that night now show Pistolas participating in the event. <sighs> the march ended at a, moment, at a monument to Thomas Jefferson where the white supremacists were met by a small group of anti-fascist counter-protesters, many of them students who had gathered at the foot of the statue. They were pushing and punching. Pistolas ran through the crowd and launched a flying kick at Gorsensky. He traveled here from out of state with the intent to do violence, said Gorsensky. His own statements match up perfectly with what, to what happened, to what's happened. The military is supposed to protect American civilians, and here we see that our soldiers are attacking American civilians and celebrating it. The melee that night immediately intensified as white supremacists bludgeoned the counter-protesters with lit torches and streams of pepper spray shot in all directions. Dozens of men attacked the anti-fascists. Pistolas was front and center, according to his post. He told his fellow Adam Waffen members how to spot him in, video, in videos of the altercation that were popping up on YouTube. If you see a guy in a tracksuit, that's me, Pistolas wrote. Another Adam Waffen member reminded Pistolas that he could face a court-martial if he was arrested for brawling, so don't get caught doing stupid shit quote-unquote, wrote the Adam Waffen member, an army soldier. The day after the torch march, Pistolas was fighting again, this time in the streets surrounding Charlottesville's Emancipation Park. He was carrying one of the flags he had specifically made for the rally and wearing a black baseball cap, combat boots, and a t-shirt with the stylized skull logo of the Punisher, a comic book uh, vigilante. Vigilante. The, at least two photos taken by Getty Images photographer capture him smashing a counter-protester with a wooden flagpole. Later, Pistolas shared a photo of the aftermath with his friends on, in Adam Waffen. The blue and red flag was splattered with blood. He said he'd quote-unquote cracked a skull and left three motherfuckers bleeding. Another member asked if he could share the bloody flag picture on Adam Waffen's Twitter account. About a month after the rally, Pistolas got into an online conversation with an Adam Waffen member from Virginia. Unite the Right was so much fun, quote-unquote, the Virginia man wrote. 
Pistolis promptly uploaded two photos of himself from that weekend. I can confirm, he wrote. Jesus. Well, and there you have it. And this is the country that we live in. Uh, it's been a particularly... The word damaging comes to mind. Heavy comes to mind. Intense comes to mind. Episode today. I suppose that's how it is most weeks. Oh, goodness. Um, so these are just some articles and witnessing of what's been happening here. And I feel the important thing is that folks who are not recognizing that this is, this is what's happening, we need to start talking about it more with the folks who, who won't recognize that or feel it doesn't affect them because it affects everybody. Oh, goodness gracious. Well... It's about 12 minutes to two, and this is about the time that we usually wrap up the show. I wish I there were more positive news stories out there, and it's not to say there aren't positive things happening. I know there are. We also just want to just provide the information about what is happening in the world so and acknowledge that it's happening because we can't pretend it's not. That's not going to help the situation at all. And in walks global val very glad to see global val here today i imagine the next few shows here will be much more uplifting with lots of positive energy in the world (laughs) and hey val you're welcome to jump on the mic if you'd like um we're just yeah oh goodness it's been a show there's it's been mostly just the horrific violent things that are happening so such as hi Roman. Oh hey Val, thanks. I don't mean to. Yeah, you're welcome. You don't have to speak. But just, no, it's okay. Yeah, I want to be here for you, my friend. Thanks. Because the world's a crazy place. That's for damn sure. So, um, what what has um, dare I ask what has transpired so far on this program this afternoon? Oh goodness. Usually, like I, there's some positive stories, like there are like protests and people fighting back, and there are a couple things, but for the most part, it's just really depressing. Uh, the last article I read was about the link between white supremacists who are active military members. Ooh. And so we were talking about like the, the Charlotte's, the event in Charlottesville and uh, one of the people who was attacking pe- people there is like, yeah, active mil- is in the Marines. And then they're quoting people from the department of defense saying, Oh, we don't allow uh, white supremacists in the Marines. However, people which who are pulled, com- which is a completely, you know, unavailable piece of information when people sign up for the military um you know they're filling out a form uh i haven't seen that form but i doubt it says check this box if you are a white supremacist or a racist um i'm pretty sure that that's not going to be on the documentation so i mean we see it as kind of this this dark vein throughout our society i mean you have you have gangs you have white supremacist gangs in prison and you're going to have white supremacists in the military as well. It's it's in it's in our industrialized um, culture, um, you know. And especially, I think if you join the military, you may be willing to take other people's word for things. And so, um, I think that's a, a kind of a root cause of racism uh, anywhere in the world is to um, just believe what you hear and what you're told. And for those of us who have heard those things and been told some of those things, uh, we know how um, challenging it can be to kind of uh, release yourself from that in your mind. Um, So 
it's, I think it's a deep hurt that a lot of people carry, um, unnecessarily. So, yeah. So we, you know, I'm kind of out of, I know it's a, we're on the radio and I'm also just out of words. I've been sighing and angry a lot and just a lot of, but you do uh, have a, you do have a signature sigh. Oh, so, you know, at least that, that, that can be said uh, for, the, <laughs> for the radio aspect of things. Sure. You yeah. Got to have some kind of yeah signature. Yeah. Well, really glad you're here. What's happening today on, on uh, women's magazine and common thread. Well, it's, Oh, it's an excellent question. Um, you know, there's not always a straight answer much like with life. Um, well, women's magazine, I'm still covering the election. Oh, yes. So I don't have any guests calling in today. Um, but if people want to get links to a lot of the election season coverage that I've been doing, both on Common Thread and Women's Magazine, oh yes, um, people can go to my website, which is globalval, G-L-O-B-A-L-V-A-L, globalval.blogspot.com. And the one that'll pop up has the links to all the different people I've been interviewing, um, and on March 30th on Women's Magazine, I ran through all the San Francisco, local San Francisco propositions. Oh, great. And uh, today, I'm probably going to talk about the California measures. Oh, yes. Which there's actually, I think there's only six statewide measures that we're voting on on June 5th. So um, definitely want to remind people that you should get out there and register to vote. Um I think it's register to vote.ca.gov and um, you're supposed to do it 15 days prior to the election. However, I read thanks to the league of pissed off voters guide that came out the other day. Oh yeah. Um, uh, they noted that actually in California for the first time um, you actually can register and vote the day of the election as oh. long as you go to city hall. Oh, like wow. You can't do it at a local precinct. You know, if you're supposed to if you and your housemates, you know, vote around the corner from you at the Episcopal church, for example, uh, you can't go there and say, I'm not registered. Can I vote? But you can go to your local, I guess, either city hall, town hall, or local election office and vote and register the day of. So even if you forget or you move to town, you know, after May 21st or something, or you're far away um, and you're coming back, you can do that. Great. Yeah. So that's, that's cool. new in California this, this year. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for that information. I, I thank the League of Pissed Off Voters for figuring that one oh, out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. And then next week, next Friday, uh, May 11th, I'm going to have two guests, actually. Um, I'm going to have people who are organizing Tiny Fest which is um, a big expo about tiny homes that's going to be happening in San Jose in mid-June. I think it's a full weekend. Um, So some folks to come in and inspire about what it means to have a tiny home and live compactly and and all the implications of that and the joys and trials and such. And then um, to kind of piggyback onto that conversation, mayoral candidate Amy Farrah Weiss will be joining me for the second half of Women's Magazine next week um, so that she can talk a lot about her housing ideas uh, because I know she's been doing a lot of research into tiny homes and um, you know modular units are something that the city has been talking about for a long time and you know kind of looking at um, housing solutions. Great that's a lot thanks so much Val I'm looking forward to that and like learning a lot Thanks Yay. for having me on the show. For Yay. sure. Absolutely. Do you have any music requests as we wrap up the show? 
No. Okay. <laughs> you always well, pick sweet. something good, Roman. Oh, oh, I don't know. Well, when I come in, which is usually a little bit late, and you're like kindly playing music, I'm always, I always like the music you're playing, so it's like no rush for a women's magazine to start it, too. Oh, right on. Well, I'll continue on with the Roy Ry Cooter. I just heard about the – he's an album that's about how when they built Dodger Stadium in Southern California, they just totally like – there's a whole population that was down there and they totally displaced them, uh, which t- tends to be a thing that happens when they build sports stadiums and other yeah. things. So he has a whole concept album about it um, called Chavez Ravine. So I was playing a couple of songs from that. So I'll just continue on with that. And then if folks want to stay tuned, coming up at 2 p.m. will be uh, Women's Magazine with Global Val. So thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to support the show and the station, go to mutinyradio.fm. We have a uh, donate button so you can support the station. If you'd like to support this particular program, go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Have a great week, everybody. Bye. Nunca pierdes en el auditorio Lintec quedaban bien con la gente, nunca hicieron enemigos, peleaban honradamente. pudieron ganar el pleito Chávez Revis se desecharon encima con mentiras hasta el fin se batieron en el lodo hasta que perdieron todo La historia del boxeo Has ganado o has perdido Pero en Chávez Ravine Todo quedó en el olvido Nadie sabe los secretos Que quedaron escondidos Ya la Pagarán con Dios esa bola de bandidos.